Hello and welcome to the Better Questions podcast. This episode uh, is actually a really great episode to watch on our YouTube channel. So for our podcast listeners, we love you. We love that you're listening. You know, obviously, you can continue to listen, but we would really encourage you to watch this episode in video because our guest today was Dr. Shane Wood. And man, he was just excited to be with us. And you could see a palpable joy on his face. And uh, today's episode is a better conversations on the book of Revelation. I've never seen someone that excited to talk to me in a long time. So (laughs) it was really good. Let alone about the book of Revelation, one of the most like misunderstood uh, and divisive books in the Bible. And uh, man, the conversation was just full of grace and just full of uh, knowledge and a lot of really helpful tools you can use to interpret Revelation and read it plainly, uh, but just great like nuggets of wisdom. And uh, yeah, it was it was just awesome. We're obviously really excited about it. It just happened and uh, we are encouraging you to watch on video. Yeah, it, it was great talking to him. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Shane Wood, he's the Associate Academic Dean and the Professor of New Testament Studies at Ozark Christian College. Um, He's written a few different books on Revelation, but he was also named one of Christian Standard's top 40 leaders under 40 and also was recognized by Theology Degrees Online as one of the 100 remarkable professors and scholars that theology students must know about. He did not ask us to say that. (laughs) No, no, he did not. Actually, we gave him the opportunity to say that, and he wouldn't, so I was more than happy to say it for him. He also just released a book called Between Two Trees that you can um, buy on Amazon and also get the audiobook from, and he'll kind of give us a little picture of what that's about in the podcast. Yeah, and I just want to kind of throw Andrew under the bus because I'll probably, since you just gave that, I'll probably edit that part out. Uh, We talked before Shane got on the call and said, hey, Andrew, why don't you like do a little introduction for him? And we asked uh, Dr. Wood, like, what can we say? What's your title? Like all that stuff. And then when we started, Andrew was like, "Uh, so why don't you introduce yourself? (laughs) How am I supposed to memorize this title after hearing it? Like, come on. I mean, you've got one job, man. Straight from... No, my job is to make sure these conversations aren't boring. Okay? You guys knew what you were getting into, and you're like, Hey, Andrew, how about you introduce him? It's like, you, you know what you're getting into. But seriously, this was an awesome episode. We're so excited to get to it and to share it with you. So here is our interview and our better conversation on Revelation with Dr. Shane Wood. Take it away, Andrew. Don't mess it up. Well, welcome to the Better Questions podcast, and we are joined today with Dr. Shane Wood from Ozark Christian College, and uh, I heard about you through some friends who went to Ozark, and I've heard nothing but good things, and so as we were planning this topic on the book of Revelation, probably the first person a lot of us thought of was you having had some of my friends attend some of your classes on the book of Revelation, and we wanted to just address some kind of questions often brought up about the book of Revelation and maybe find better ways to pose those questions. But before we get any of that, uh, I would just like you to introduce yourself to everyone listening. Oh my. All right. Yeah. I mean, I'm Shane. I'm a father of four. I have an amazing wife. I get to teach New Testament here at Ozark Christian College and uh, very excited to be on here tonight talking to you guys, especially because... uh, uh, it's about revelation and I, that's my jam. That's, that's where I live, have lived for, uh, most of my academic career. So <laughs> I would, uh, love to hear 
what got you going down the road of revelation in your uh, scholarly and academic work? Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious. I think that's probably the right word for me. Uh, <laughs> and honestly, what got me going down the road is that I felt like in the church that we didn't talk about something that was, that was in our canon, that was in the Bible. Uh, and it, and it bothered right. me. It, it, it was one of those things where I'm like, you know, why are we avoiding this or, um, why are people obsessing over it? And so for me, it was my own my own curious questions, my own, if I'm going to be a Christian, I don't want to leave any rock un- over, you know, unturned because I don't, I don't, I don't think there's anything we have to be afraid of, if, especially if it's in the text itself. So, so for me, it was personal questions and, and the fact that nobody in the church had really talked to me about it. Right. It doesn't help that a lot of people mispronounce the title of the book <laughs> as uh, revelations, which, Hey, no judgment here. If that's you. Absolutely. No, we, we've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> I, I'm curious, kind of before you really started studying the book, were there any um, uh, assumptions or perceptions that you had personally about the book of Revelation that as you started to learn more about it kind of made you rethink? Yeah, my, my assumption, and it's funny because I don't even know where the assumption came from because like I said in our church, we never really talked about it. Uh, but my, my assumption was that if if you wanted to have a question answered about the end of the world, go to the book of Revelation. And that was the assumption that I even began with. I, I, I've told the story on uh, some of the, my teaching before where it's I'm a high school student and I'm driving home and I come up over the hill and there's the moon blood red and it freaks me out. And so it's like one in the morning and I go home and I grab my Bible and I flip to Revelation. And at one thirty in the morning, that's that's the first time I ever read the book cover to cover, like I'm at Revelation 1 verse 1 all the way to the, you know, chapter 22. And it was because I was scared and tr- uh, of the end of the world. And truthfully, when I got done to the end of the book, I was even more scared. So it didn't really <laughs> <Right>. help me. <laughs> One of the first times I read uh, Revelation was at church camp at night, like in the dorm when the lights were off and I have like a flashlight just like reading all the insane stuff, be like, man, I hope I like make it through high school before all this stuff happens. So, so I can it's like a bad dare, you know, it's right. It does. Scared that. <laughs> so I, I have somewhat of a confession. I feel like I've probably read all of it or most of it in sections, but I've never read it start to finish cover to cover uh, in my life. So we're embarrassed. Just, just for throwing you, that out there. You're not, you're not the only one friend. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like, you know, there's always that one movie for most people where everybody loves it. And you're like, I mean, I've kept caught it on cable a few times. Like, I've probably seen the whole thing. Listen to the collectively. Yeah. yeah. It's like anyway, the fugitive for some people. <laughs> the yeah. fugitive. Yeah. Yeah. In a... Was the one-armed man. <laughs> In a, one of your uh, video lectures... Uh, I, I caught you say that you encourage Christians to ask the right questions mm. about revelations, which would make a great podcast, by the way. So it made yeah. me think, what are some bad questions you've heard maybe in class or just in the church about revelation? Maybe if bad's too strong of a word, like misguided. Yeah. Honestly, what what I have found is that it's a lot of the top questions that we ask of Revelation are the ones, and I don't know, I I don't know if I would say the word bad. It, it's more of mm-hmm. just a, like you like you corrected yourself, but it's more of a I just don't know that Revelation cares about those questions as much as you do. Mm-hmm. You know, like when will the world mm-hmm. end? Yeah. I'm just I'm like I just don't know that Revelation cares to talk about the answers to the questions. That a lot of times we ask, and so I, I was even on a radio program not too uh, long ago, and and one of the guys is like, "So I heard your Revelation guy. He's like, all I have to ask you is, uh, who's the Antichrist?" And I just laughed. <laughs> I was right. like, "Yeah, that's a good one," because I just don't know that Revelation cares to to stare into our crystal balls the way that we desire to stare into them. And so I think a lot of times the questions that intrigue us most are the questions that I think are distracting us when it comes to Revelation. Um, now, I did get a wild one recently where I was asked by somebody if um, 
if they if I was worried about the word goat being used a lot for greatest of all time and whether or not I thought that was some sort of biblical sign that the end of the world was coming. And I was like, I don't I don't really know that an acronym <laughs> is really indicating that. But so, I mean, I wow. guess that would be a, that would be an interesting one. <laughs> for the Tom top. Brady is ushering in the end of the world <laughs> with all the, the Super Christ. Bowl. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> You know, that's funny because sometimes I feel like people uh, probably either on the fringes or outside of the church world, when they think of Bible scholar, they probably, that's exactly what they think of, like somebody pouring over the scripture looking for like secret codes. They're like, oh, I'm going to read all these words and count the number of letters and come up with the date for the end of the world and who the name of the Antichrist is and all that. And it's just so funny when they realize how like completely not true or how you know unaccurate that is yeah um, it's almost like so unglamorous on the real like just studying hard work side uh they'd be really surprised but you mentioned like the text itself being more concerned with certain other questions and i wondered if you could speak to like what are those questions maybe the text itself is more concerned with yeah, no, that's a that's a fantastic. That is the right question. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Well done. No, I, I I find that question very important because I don't think it's a question we ask enough of the Bible. Um, what does the Bible want to talk about? And and maybe there's a part of it that it's trying to guide us to something that is more wise or is more probing, um, especially when we come to the the concept of prophecy. Uh, so I, I uh, Revelation chapter one, verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And a lot of our questions or assumptions come from what we even think prophecy is. Um, but I, I, I summarize, I think prophecy is revealing three things, which I think are our three questions. Who is God? What does God desire? And what does God demand of his people? Um, and, and these three things, I think, summarize what all prophecy is about. Um, if predict is prediction is involved, it's along for a greater ride. It's not even that prediction isn't involved. I mean, like Daniel seven, Daniel two. There's some pretty incredible predictions, but if but but the prediction's not the purpose. It's not the goal. The goal is bigger. It's to actually, as D. B. Sandy says in um, in his book Plowshares and Pruning Hooks, prophecy is intended to prosecute and persuade a rebellious people. Uh, and so you have a rebellious people whenever if revelations written to me and it's like, blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy immediately, my stomach's going to tighten. Mm. I'm going to be like, oh, no, because prophecy is written to rebellious people trying to show them what it is they've done wrong and how it is that they need to correct. And so the three questions I ask revelation every chapter, who is God? What does he desire and what is he demanding of me or of his people as a whole? Man, that's good. I'm curious, especially as you talked about the concept of prediction, you talked about some of your assumptions, assumptions of other people. When it comes to the idea of future and end of the world, that's what I hear most all the time. Just around Christmas time, I did a sermon out of, of Revelation 12. And I had, yeah, and I had people come up to me and they're like, Oh man, that was like that was really interesting. I thought everything in Revelation was about the future. And I'm just curious where where did that come from? Because I feel like everyone says, "Oh, well, that's what I was always taught growing up." Or for me, I read through the whole Left Behind for Kids series. Yeah, oh, man. My uh, <laughs> and, but if you just kept tracing it back, where does that idea start from? Wow. Yeah. I mean, to be perfectly honest, the concept of, you know, the unfolding of history, uh, that can be found in the very earliest strata of even the wrestling with Revelation. So it's not that this is brand new wrestling with Revelation. Revelation's weird. And even the early church had people that utilized it for at times predictive things. However, the dominant strand of Revelation throughout the history of the church has not been uh, predictive in orientation, but has been transformational in in its uh, trajectory and its uh, goal. Uh, it really, though, exploded for the Western world in 1830. Uh, 1830, a woman by the name of Margaret MacDonald in Scotland goes into a self-induced trance. 
uh, and she writes down this letter where for the first time in the history of the church, we have the idea of before a concept or before a time of persecution, the church would be pulled out or what we eventually refer to as raptured out. Mm. John Nelson Darby then was uh, catches wind of it, kind of develops some theological muscle around it. Uh, and he six times over the next about 15 to 20 years comes to America, um, interacting primarily with a group called the Plymouth Brethren. And he's bringing this idea uh, of the rapture and kind of this. So, so now all of a sudden revelation starts to unfold in these dispensations and it starts to unfold in these predictive elements that, that are dominating the text. It's not that they were never present. It's just that now they're dominating in a unique way. And this gets picked up in the Schofield Reference Bible, which at the turn of the 20th century was one of the most, was the very first study Bible in English. I mean, so people wanting to study the word of God have at the bottom this description of the way in which the rapture and this predictive element doesn't just impact Revelation, but but the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about it there. He's talking about it all throughout. And then it gets picked up, you know, by Dwight L. Moody and, and Billy Graham. And eventually, you know, you have uh, Tim LaHaye uh, or, I mean, Hal Lindsey before Tim LaHaye and then the 90s with the Left Behind series. And what's fascinating is whenever I trace this history, it's like, this is how something that had not really been, well, it was not spoken of in the early church, the rapture, this concept, but in 180 years can become the dominant perspective mm. of the church. A matter of fact, whenever I've told this stuff in churches before, uh, what I've heard, matter of fact, I had an 80-year-old man at a church before, get, he, got, he, got, he didn't get upset with me. I think he was just frustrated. Uh, but he said, how come I've been in the church for 70 years and I've never heard this? This sounds very new to me. And, and my first thing to do is I said, as a leader of the church, my first thing to say is I'm sorry, uh, right. because this has been the dominant view of the church for 2000 years that I'm talking about. And I'm sorry that we haven't done a good job of actually uh, letting you know there was more option than the one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think part of it, too, is like we associate in our minds uh the idea of the future with a word that people hear a lot in reference to Revelation, which is apocalypse, and how the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And I just wondered if if you could expand on the true meaning of apocalyptic literature and maybe how that's also uh, in our English and cultural context, like kind of missed the mark a little bit. No, that's great. Yeah. You know, goodness, apocalyptic. We're talking $25 words here. So that's exactly. <laughs> that's a, uh, but you're right. Uh, that's that's a word that gets thrown around and we don't really know uh, where it comes from. Uh, apocalyptic, number one, it's a it's a genre of writing. It's a type of writing that was actually quite popular at the end of the first century. Um, so my students at Revelation uh, here at Ozark, we will read uh, Second Esdras, uh, chapter 11 through chapter 12 which was a Jewish apocalyptic text and the thing at the end of the first century. And the thing I try to show them when you read those two chapters, it sounds eerily similar to Revelation 13. Mm. And so part of my response is what is super unfamiliar to us was not unfamiliar to them. It would have been, they would have walked into a setting like that and they would have been going, Oh, okay. I, I kind of know I'm familiar with this the same way that I walk into a, you know, a star Wars film and I, I know what to expect. Right. You know, if I right. see a lightsaber, I'm going to be confused, you know, and so in right. apocalyptic functions the same way. The, the point of apocalyptic literature, though, the real essence behind the word is in unveiling. And we assume the unveiling is about the future, but sometimes the unveiling is very much important about the present. I'm like, like, I don't know about any of you, but it's like there's times I lose my way and I don't need to be lost in the future. I lose my way now. Right. And what, and what Revelation does is it tries to give us eyes to see and ears to hear of what God is doing in the present, even if a empire like Rome is dominating our view and dominating our thoughts. So apocalyptic literature goal uh, was to unveil, especially to an oppressed or a rebellious people. Um, it was to unveil what they what they assume they cannot see, but in reality is very, very much present. With, with you saying that, would you mind, I know that there are like huge books that have been written about this and we don't have tons and tons of time, but maybe giving a, a few cliff notes of the context in which Revelation's being written and kind of what 
the setting was like for the Christians that would have been receiving that letter? Yeah. And again, I want to affirm like that, that's, that's the right question. Uh, because it's what I try to remind my students. It's like, we're over here in a conversation. These are real people at a real right. time going through real issues. And we need to respect that. And, and if I'm going to summarize uh, what they're going through in one word, it's conflict. Um, but, but I intentionally leave the word conflict vague. What I, what, I don't, what I don't think we have to find is a time period in which all these Christians are, there's an edict by Rome and they're killing Christians in mass. No, conflict or persecution is much, much more multifaceted than that. Um, and frankly, I think in our, in our country today, we would do well to even re realize that persecution isn't just when someone gets hit. It isn't just when someone's being killed. Um, it, it is very, it's, it's treating someone as if they are dead, even though they're alive. Uh, but but the, the, the Christian context at the end of the first century, Domitian, which was the emperor from 81 to 96, his family came to power at the destruction of the temple. And all of their coins and all of their architecture is saturated in anti-Jewish imagery. Um, so, so I, and I uh, uh, did my dissertation on this is uh, looking at the different coins and the images and how they instruct some of the images we see in Revelation. And one of the things I found from uh, Domitian's family, which is called the Flavians, is that anti-Jewish sentiment is what they built their reputation on because they had no reputation before they crushed the Jews. And wow. then my question was this, what happens if the Romans don't see as big of a difference between the Jews and the Christians that we do? Now Christians are being caught up in this political game in order to justify people. And if I'm a Jew, it would be natural for me to say, hey, don't come at me. Look at these people. You know, I'm like, so there is, and this, you see this in Revelation 2 and 3, Revelation 2, 9, Revelation 3, 9, where talking to the churches, Jesus says, you know, those that claim to be Jews that are, but are not. Like there's conflict between the Jews and the Christians, but I think it's conflict that's that's not just going back to the times of Paul, but the time of Revelation. It was there was an extreme tension, so it, it manifests itself in taxation, manifests itself in discrimination, at times killing and exile, like John is on Patmos. It was a time of conflict, of tension, um, and Christians are asking the question. Now that the living, the last living apostle is, is exiled to the island of Patmos and could die, what does this mean for us? I thought, right. we, I thought the kingdom had come in Christ, but Rome seems to be winning pretty magnificently. Which is sad because since the church so often focuses on the more cinematic aspects like left behind parts of Revelation, we miss that tension today of, we live in a very conflicted time, not only in the world, but like in our country. And I feel like Revelation has a lot to say about living in that tension as a Christian, um, especially like the themes of exile and whatnot. Uh, so I, it is really sad that we've we focused on maybe the more sensationalist or misguided aspects when, like you said, it has a very urgent message to people, Christians living in the world in conflicting times. But uh, another thing I wanted to ask you was, speaking of those more sensationalist parts of Revelation, there's a lot of symbols and pictures and images. Really? And, yeah. <laughs> this just in. Yeah. Breaking news. And so, and so wow. I think just like the more historical notes kind of um, tune people's ears out of the book of Revelation, I think also the pictures obviously do too. So... I would like to ask, when it comes to those crazy symbols, do are we to translate them literally, figuratively, or are those even like right terminology to use for what's going on? Yeah, no, and that it's so funny how different debates distract us, uh, especially when it comes to Revelation. Hey, Amen. This is one. This is the one that I get a lot. You know, they're like, "Well, do you take the Bible literally or figuratively?" And I'm like, "There's." I call it a semantic bomb. I'm like, you've just set a bomb in the room. And if it goes off, the thing that'll break my heart is it'll end our conversation. Right. Uh, and, 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 and that's something that I, that I lament. Cause I'm going like, listen, I'm not even claiming to have all the answers. I'm, I, what I'm claiming is 
is maybe that maybe that there's a question or perspective that I'm bringing that would actually be sharpened if you brought your perspective. But when people ask literal or figurative, there's a line in the sand. So typically my response back immediately is, what do you mean by literal? And, and, and I'm, I'm like, because I don't want to define it for you. And it means something to you passionately. And I want to know what you mean by it. Uh, because if I can hear your heart into it, then maybe, maybe what I'll do is once I hear a definition, I'll say, oh, okay, yeah, exactly. Then I take by your definition, I take it literally. But, but maybe what you say is, well, I just, whatever the Bible says, you know, I, I, that, that's what it says. And I'm like, okay, that's not exactly what the word literally means though. Uh, typically, typically what I find is, and so this will be a generalization that I would love for somebody, if I'm talking to them individually to correct, the generalization is what we mean by literal is surface level. I'm not going to go beneath just whatever it says on the surface. And, and there, there, there is a, a um, uh, I, I don't want to be pejorative. I don't want to be negative about it. There is a seeming wisdom to that until mm -hmm. we realize it starts to violate language. Um, and so what I mean is I'm like, I was like, okay, but I don't even know if I can put all of my language into two boxes, literal or figurative. Um, so for example, I was telling my students the other night, I was like, man, wasn't the sunset yesterday beautiful? Well, technically that is a figurative statement, but you know what I mean, literally. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and how is that figurative? Well, I mean, the earth's rotating, the sun is not setting. But no one goes around saying, did you see the earth rotation yesterday? Wasn't that amazing? Like Exactly. That'd be an odd something. And so there's a part of this whenever I say, I'm not so sure those boxes are helpful. Um, because if you want to say surface level, well, then I say, okay, well, Revelation chapter 1, verse 16 says, Jesus, out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword. How surface level do we want to be here? Is he a sword swallower? Is, is that the goal of the text? My next question is, is, how is he then talking if he has a sword in his mouth? Like, it's like, but, but no one, no, at that point, everybody, even the people in the literal camp are going, well, no, that's not what I mean. Okay, then, then let's sharpen our definition of literal so that we can move forward in a conversation that's constructive for everyone. Our definition of literal, well, the word literal comes from the Latin word litera, which means letter by letter. Mm. We're paying so much attention to every letter of the author that we allow them to say what they are saying. So then I tell my students, I say, so if the author is literally using a symbol, then you need to literally interpret it as a symbol. Because that's good. Yeah, because I'm going like, you have to let the author to be able to move back and forth. Um, but the problem, but the problem is, is that when we don't define our terms and we put the Bible in these categories, a lot of times then we violate the very things that we're trying to protect. Um, and, and it just causes all kinds of mudslinging, which is not the goal of Revelation. So, yes, I think that it is just as symbolic as the Psalms and as Matthew. Now, at times, does it have more symbols? Sure. And at times, is it literal in the sense of I'm not using a symbol? I'm just telling you something. Yeah. But bottom line is language doesn't fit into a box. Could, yeah, could you awesome. maybe give an example of a place in Revelation where there is a symbol that if we try to force it into what most people might mean by the word literally, we really miss the beauty of what it's trying to say? Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, let's see, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Yeah, this is to the Church of Philadelphia. It says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar... In the temple of my God. Now, now, my initial response is, if I'm taking that literal and I'm Philadelphia, I'm going, I'm not so sure I want to overcome then. I mean, who wants to eternally be a marble post in a temple? I, I kind of like being a human. It's, in, it's in made in the image of God. That's quite delightful. And it, it gets even worse, though, <laughs> once you get to the new heavens and the new earth. Because once we get back to Revelation chapter 21, verse 22... This startling verse comes out. It says, he's in New Jerusalem. He says, I did not see a temple in the city. I'm like, no, wait a minute. In Revelation 3, 12, you promised me that if I overcame, I would be a pillar in the temple of the New Jerusalem, which was weird, but I, I took you at your word. And then I get to the New Jerusalem, and what do you say? Ah, there's no temple. And I'm going, what's happening? Well, this is what's happening. 
the pillar in the ancient world, when you're talking temples, the pillar was an essential component of the architectural integrity of the building. If you wanted to tear down a temple, you would tear down the pillars. They were so intimate to the structure itself that you could not knock down a pillar and it not actually hurt the whole temple. And what's fascinating is, is that once you get to Revelation 21, 22, the new Jerusalem says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, all of a sudden, as a person that overcomes in Philadelphia, if I become a pillar in the temple of my God and Jesus and God are the temple, the intimacy and the interwoven, the union with me and God is so close. It's like a temple and its pillar. That to me, that sings. If it is taken on the surface level, it's weird. Contradiction or just something I don't even know that I want. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's really good. And it's great because you even said earlier when we were talking about literal and figurative that uh, as soon as you answer that bomb, it makes a line in the sand. And I was really like glad you said that because that's one of the taglines of our show actually is how too often our answers to certain questions become that line in the sand. And uh, so what I wanted to kind of segue to is then, you know, you also mentioned that sometimes doing that can get us off the road of figuring out what the book is really trying to say to us. And you just gave this example of, of, of that. But I'm wondering if you could kind of sum up, uh, you know, quickly what you would say is like the overall overarching point of the book that it's trying to communicate to us, but so often we're missing it because we're getting caught up in all these arguments. Yeah. No, and honestly, it's something that I remind myself all the time. What is the overarching point of the book? Well, it's the first five words of the book. The revelation mm. of Jesus Christ. I, I genuinely believe that Revelation's goal was to make more clear who Christ was, uh, because I genuinely believe um, that the more clear we understand who Christ is, the more clear we understand who we are. And then I believe that then uh, the more they understand who we are, the better we'll understand what to do. Um, Stuart Briscoe once said, uh, the, the more you tell someone who they are, the less you have to tell them what to do. Uh, because action flows from identity. And and these churches in Revelation have forgotten who they are because they've forgotten who Jesus is. And therefore, their actions are in total disarray. And their actions are being justified off of a false understanding of who Christ is. And that's why you see Christ, the, the, the most vivid pictures of Christ come out of Revelation. There are five images of Christ in Revelation, and they are astounding. They, they are, you cannot mistake who it is. You cannot mistake his power, his glory, his sacrifice. And there's a part of this that I think what Christians need most today is not a prediction of the future. They need a clear picture of who Christ is so that we can remember who we are in him. Amen. But, but honestly, I, I, that's actually the reason why I think revelation is neglected and punted to the future. I think the clearer picture of Christ becomes a mirror and we don't like what we see when we stare in the mirror. I mean, right. how do you avoid it? Well, figure out a way around it. Punt it to the yeah. future. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. That Speaking of that, that reminds me of uh, sort of towards the middle of the book, there's that picture of Jesus where he's announced as the lion and then everyone looks and you see a slain lamb. And I think that's a great play on like what we want to see versus what the true image is, which is someone who conquers through sacrifice and through laying your life down, which to me, when I read revelation, that's a very powerful kind of like mirror that's held up to me that I really benefit from. Right. And not only that, like just the allusion to creation and the, and the paradise, the garden of these two animals that should be, you know, one predator and one prey living in harmony. This kind of turns that on its head is like, not only is the lamb slain, but the lamb, gave its life willingly um yeah it's just that's it's just really cool play and it made me like want to ask too just a follow-up so that being kind of the overarching theme and point and we you know i think you already gave us some reason why he might pick apocalyptic literature uh literary style to show all those images of christ 
uh, in vivid uh, imaginary detail. I'm wondering if there are any other reasons you think um, the writer of Revelation would pick those or pick that genre to write this in if that was the goal he had in mind. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I think I think also the the vehicle of apocalyptic literature allows him to do uh, kind of like what poetry allows us to do or music allows us to do today. And that is to communicate things that by their very nature are beyond what words can totally contain. Uh, like with the, the moment that I start talking about the love from my wife or or the way that Christ meant to me, I, I always merge into hyperbolic language, exaggerated language, poetic language. You know, it's like I say, I love my wife. Well, that's great. But it's like if I really wanted to communicate to you, it would be something more along the lines of, no, I would die for her. At which point I'm going like, and what do I mean that literally or figuratively? Yes, I would literally die for her, but I'm using it figuratively right now to communicate the intensity with which I feel for her. Right. And we do this all the time. And so John has a real encounter with God. How do you describe an encounter with God and use no symbols and only the language that we have? Like John, the revelation is, is, is language pushed to its breaking point. It is stretching language as far as this medium can take it, knowing that it cannot ultimately even contain what it is he is interacting uh, with. And, and apocalyptic literature lends itself to that very vehicle. Um, it's like music. It, it would have been a natural place to go if you wanted to describe things beyond what we can taste, touch, see, hear. Y- you have to. You have to move beyond. Which makes sense because a lot of worship songs in the church today and in the past have been pulling from the book of Revelation for so like, you know, images and ideas and, holy, and scripture. Holy, holy. <laughs> Yeah, let's Dan get a guitar yeah. out. Let's just let's just go for it, man. Well, and I'm <laughs> curious too as you're talking about language here. There there are some things with the language in Revelation that get pulled out as really hot button words, and I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about some of those things like uh the antichrist or the mark of the beast. Like what what should we do with those terms? Well, well, first of all, I, I, yeah, I'm glad you actually used both terms. And the reason why, because my, my first response is, make sure the term is actually in Revelation. Because <laughs> the word Antichrist never even appears in Revelation, which is always the, it's one of the things I find quite humorous. It's like, who's the Antichrist? Well, don't look into Revelation. Look into the, you know, to John's epistles, or because <laughs> that's the only time the word's even used. The second thing I would say is, yeah, like, what do we do with things like Mark of the Beast? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, that I talk to my students about a lot is I say, listen, make sure you don't focus on one tree and you miss the whole forest. Um, mm. my, my first caution is it is so tempting to focus in on one symbol by itself to the point where you miss the whole context within the, which the symbol is talking about. I mean, it would be like me walking through a, um, you know, an exhibit of Picasso and saying, I am only going to look at blue in anything else. I will not look at. And it's like, no, you're going to see something, but you're going to miss the beauty of the entire painting. Allow yourself to see every stroke, both in its individual detail, but as a collective whole. So when it comes to the mark of the beast, it's like, I understand our desire for that. Now, our desire for that has a lot more to do with our, um, once again, our intrigue with the future and predicting and the, the mystery. We're more excited about the mystery of a cipher than we are about the mystery of Christ himself, which I find to be right. startling. Uh, but I'm going like, listen, we can talk about the mark of the beast, but we, we have to keep it in the context of who God is, what God desires, and what he demands of his people. We have to. Uh, matter of fact, a lot of times um, I, I have a, a whole article I wrote on what is 666? I'm like, all right, I'm like, let, let's, let's dive into it. Uh, and, and the problem is, is I, I even say at the very beginning, I'm like, listen, the problem is, is that I'm probably going to make this so simple. You're not going to like it. It's just, to me, it's not even that difficult, uh, because, but I take it, I'm like, listen, it's six, 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 but there's an early manuscript, um, P oxyrhynchus one fifteen. Uh, it's a really small manuscript and it's from around the, you know, second century. So it's super early third century. Um, and it says six, one, six. And I'm like, oh no. So you can't just wrestle with 666. 
You also have 616, which Irenaeus in his book Against Heresies, so beginning of the second century, he brings up 616 too. I'm like, let's get, you really want to get into the weeds? Let's get into the weeds. This is wild. I said, but here's, here's the thing. When you look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, uh, it, it starts to try to tell us what it is. I just don't know that we, we care. So mm. verse 17 says, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And chapter 15, verse 2 says the same thing. It says, and I saw what looked like the sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who have been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. So now the question becomes, well, what's the name that adds up to 666? And this is this is where it gets super not interesting. <laughs> if you take the Greek word beast, therion, and you put it into Hebrew, which was a very normal thing for Jews and Christians to do, and you add it up, it equals 666. It's not that interesting. What is it saying? That even down to what you buy and sell will be influenced by who you worship, as if it is stamped on your head in your hand, the name of the beast, which actually in chapter 14, verse 1, is the same thing it says for Christians, just with God. So it says, then I looked. And there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Right. This is pulling in Old Testament imagery. It's actually pulling in the the great Shema. It's pulling in phylactery boxes. Exactly. But, But this is what it boils down to. Who are you in light of who you belong to? Like who who you are is defined by who you worship, and it will impact everything you do, even down to how you buy and sell something, which is why I tell my students all the time, I say, if your theology doesn't impact every part of who you are, then it is absolutely worthless. It's a game we're playing, and I'm not interested in playing a game with theology because I think theology only makes sense in the context of transformation, and I'd say the same thing about Mark of the Beast. So it's not a microchip? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what you're saying is <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> i'm pretty sure amazon is going down that route i just want to like make sure before i get something put in my hand i mean i i just like got a bunch of items put it in my cart and it said that it was going to cost six dollars and 66 cents man and i was freaked out oh I mean, yeah, if man. it makes shopping shop- easier <laughs> <laughs> i'll be oh, honest oh with you I, it's like I always, say, you know, I try to always say, like, my technology will never be the what determines my salvation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I, I was curious to ask you, too. So I know we, we've already said so many people view Revelation as something that we're still waiting to happen in the future. And then there's also, like, the real small corner of people who would say everything in Revelation already happened. Uh <laughs> Um, but one thing that I have found really helpful as I've listened to some of your teachings on it is looking at how what is said about um, empire and some of all of these different things is said in kind of a broad way that speaks to wh- whoever's in power at the time and whatever Christians are facing at that time. And I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to what the book of Revelation is saying to Christians today. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. You know, for a long time, I used to teach and think that um, the the most potent message, specific message uh, for Christians today was in the Church of Laodicea, Revelation 3, where it talks about the way that we use our finances and to rely more on ourselves than on God. And that always concerned me because I'm going, Jesus gets rowdy with that church. He's like, I'm about to convulsively vomit you out of my mouth. Because you rely more on your stuff than you do on me. Today, though, honestly, I, I think the book of Revelation would probably, we would, we would uh, align more with Ephesus. This church that is uh, incredible at truth, but is not good at love. Um, I think in the American church today, when it comes to right and wrong, we, we're pretty good at figuring that out from the text. Uh, we, we're pretty good at... Um, you know, figuring out exactly what the Bible says on this particular cultural issue. And I say pretty good in the sense of we always have an answer. Um, But here's the thing that I'm most concerned with. But whenever we communicate that answer to our society, 
It is not through the love of Christ. Uh, matter of fact, I feel like at times we're more concerned with being right than we are in trying to figure out how to redeem people. Um, and I, and I, I do, I, Jesus gets just as rowdy with Ephesus. Ephesus was great. They, they had, you know, these false apostles, but they were so good at truth. They were able to root them out and the Nicolaitans and Jesus like, this is great. He's like, but I have this against you. You've forgotten your first love. Do you remember what I, the heights from which you have fallen? Do you remember when I found you and you were this mess? He's like, and the problem is, is that you're coming to these very people that are broken and your response is to break them. So I, I, uh, I've preached a couple of times this concept. Uh, one of the sermons that I was given about a year ago was called Speak Against Culture. That was my topic. <laughs> and so my dominant thought was this. You are allowed to speak against culture. You are allowed to speak against the culture you are willing to die for. Um, if you are not willing to be crucified for the culture, then you're not allowed to speak against them. Because I'm going like, listen, Jesus got rowdy. But he got rowdy with the very people that then when he's on the cross, he's interceding on behalf for them. Mm-hmm. And I think 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that you can know all prophecies, fathom all mysteries. But if you do not have love, you're a resounding gong, which I summarize with this statement. Um, if you communicate God's truth, but it is not through God's love, it is no longer God's truth. Because mm-hmm. it's not just what you say that matters. It's the form in which you say it. And Revelation is emphatic. The form in which God's truth came to us is in the shape of a slain lamb. Um, it, is in, it is in the shape of a cross. As a matter of fact, Revelation 12, 11 says, They overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the testimony of the saints that would not shrink from death. Which again, I would summarize with, they overcome the dragon. We overcome Satan by Jesus' sacrifice and us looking just like him. Yep. Yep. And I think that's what the message of the church needs to hear today. Quit sacrificing people on the altar of truth. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I'm curious um, if I kind of segue this into another facet or way to look at Revelation that I've been wanting to to bring up. And uh, I'll just start by just saying um, earlier we were talking about this, the message Revelation has for us. We need to uh, take so much to heart that it influences what we buy and sell. And like, just anecdotally, um, me and my wife have been just talking a lot about that and like what our faith and our, our, uh, you know, just journey trying to follow Christ means for technology and the internet. And like, can we support certain companies if they're not treating the environment well, or they're not treating humans well. And, uh, I think that's a really big concern nowadays. Um, because we have no idea the carbon footprint we're leaving or like some of the people that were the lives we're ruining all over the world and just leaving in the wake of our technology. And so all of that makes me also think about um, some of, I've done some reading on some of the political undertones of the book of Revelation. And I just wondered if you could speak to some of those. Um, I loved what you said about uh 666. I think that makes a lot of sense and it kind of dissolves a lot of the mystery behind that. Um, but I actually heard, and maybe this person was just mistaken, um, but that also the letters of Nero come together to make 666, the same way with the Greek and the Hebrew. And so um, I think you can see almost an undercurrent of like um, a warning against the dangers of uh, empire in Revelation. Uh, and I just thought, wondered if you could speak to that. Uh, first of all, I'll say, you know, that that is one of the, uh, the Kaiser Neron uh, explanation of, of 666. That's actually one of the more uh, dominant views in scholarship, at least from the 1800s up until today. Uh, and and uh, I don't think it's illegitimate. I just don't think it fully explains the image. However, I will say that in the context you brought that up is that it does point to this question of the empire. Matter of fact, my entire PhD dissertation was answering this question. How does the book of Revelation interact with the empire? Now, now I intentionally had that question because I wanted to look at imagery, but I also wanted to answer the question you're talking about. And that is, is this book anti-imperial? That's and now scholars assume, oh, absolutely. It's anti-imperial. I actually pushed back a little. 
And this is why Hmm. I say this. No, I'm not saying it's not critical of the empire, but this is what Revelation says. The empire is too small of a target. The, wow. the, the empire, if we if we trash the the anti or all of the empires that were evil, the true kingdom that we're targeting still would march forward. Satan's kingdom would be unscathed. That's why I love that Babylon or that Rome is called Babylon. It reminds us Rome is just another empire and a long line of empires that will go the same route. They will be devoured by the very one that they're in league with, which tells me this. If, if my goal is to tear down an evil empire and I tear it down, I've accomplished nothing because another, another empire one. will yeah. come back in its place. So then the question becomes, well, then how do I target the empire behind the empire? And now I'm going, now we're back into the conversation of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we're in the conversation of the cross, that the weapons that we fight Satan, who is the one that is propping up all of these prostitutes, this unholy trinity of Satan and his two beasts who are propping up prostitute empire after empire after empire. How we target them is the way in which Christ destroyed them on the cross. We target them by by not shrinking from death in the face of our testimony, by loving our enemy, by loving our neighbor, by willing to lay down our life for them. And so therefore, it also says this, if an empire crushes you, then as you love your enemy, you still win. And for the churches of Revelation, they needed that. What Revelation is not calling the Christians of Revelation to do is to attack Rome by tearing them down. Because, I, because listen, we can eradicate our enemies in two ways. We can either annihilate them or we can convert them. And Revelation is saying the latter is the path of Christ because that targets the true enemy. The true, which I always say that Revelation, uh, Rome provides the grammar, but Eden provides the target. Wow. Yeah. That's really good. I mean, that I really like what you said there because for a long time I've kind of felt like I've caught I've been caught in the middle of two perspectives that I didn't know if I wanted to go full all in with, which is one perspective is like, you know, the kind of conservative way right now which is like pro-America, completely consumed almost by nationalism uh in the church. Uh the other perspective being, well there's all this anti uh empire language and revelation so that means we got to be against america and i've kind of been like i don't know that i really want to land at either one of those places and what you said i think is a great way to kind of ride the middle of that and say actually you know yes does america sometimes act like an empire of course it does and is there some negative things with that of course but we're to love america in the sense of not like America first and pro-America over everybody else. It's no, let's love America in the sense of give ourselves in love to show love to the people of America. Exactly right. Yeah, Revelation would would actually critique both extremes. And it would say you're missing the target. You're missing the target. So uh, speaking of that, one of the things we like to cover on the podcast is how to disagree well. Because when we bring up these questions, inevitably people are going to go start going down different paths and i think one of the problems in the church today is like we just like you said we draw lines and it's like well once you step over there we're done so speaking of revelation and like all the different ways people interpret it and i've never met someone who has like a hundred percent the same take on the book of revelation as someone else and that makes that makes reading commentaries fun if you could call it fun is People being like, well, so-and-so argues for this, but this is why he's a complete moron. And, you know, <laughs> it's like no one no one can really, you know, agree 100%. So I would love to know on Revelation and maybe in biblical topics in general, how can we as Christians disagree well? Oh, I wish we would ask that question more often in the church. Hmm. I lament it. I'm going, we should be the best at disagreeing. Right. If the church wants to give society a gift, Let's show them how to disagree and still love each other. Like, I, I can't believe uh, that the blood of Christ isn't enough for us to be united. Mm. Uh, and so, the, first of all, I always say this. Whenever I teach Revelation, I put a couple ground rules in place. First ground rule is I call it the principle of humility, which says this. And this is me speaking. I'm saying, I don't have it all figured out. So when you disagree with me, and I would say when, because we're going to disagree. We do two things. You do it respectfully. And you tell me why. You, you, we do it respectfully. We both understand that our heart is in the same place. 
we both are longing for the truth to 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 come and guide us. And I think truth is a capital T based off of uh, John 14 for Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Our, our hearts are in the same spot. So we don't need to kill each other in order for us to move forward. We need to figure out a way to disagree respectfully. But tell me why. When, when I come to interact, this is why I loved whenever you guys even invited me for this podcast. I love that. I'm like, every time I interact with people on Revelation, I learn something new. And, I, and I've studied close to a million pages on this one book alone. But I, I do not have it all figured out. Every time I teach the class, a student will ask a question and I'll go, I've never thought of that before. Let's, let's play with that. That's incredible. Yeah. And this is the way that as Christians, we give ourselves, uh, we give each other a gift, not just with our presence, but with our love enough to share our perspective. Even if I don't agree, I know that you're giving me the greatest gift by loving me into a possible moment of, of well, unveiling, of revelation. Uh, but I think it's a lot of times we come in with our insecurities and we're more intent on fighting for ourselves, fighting to be right, fighting to be heard more than we are fighting to be transformed. Um, and and I, I think it's our posture. I think it's our entry point. And I feel like that that's the problem. 90 percent of our conversations in society, people want to get, uh, you know, reelected more than they want to have a conversation about what helps people. people or they want to make money. They want to make money. They want to be right. They want power in all the ways we define it. But Christianity defines power differently. I actually can walk away from a conversation having had all of my points decimated and still feel like I've won. Because ultimately the goal is not for me to be right. It's for me to become someone different. Um, and I, I had my mentor tell me this before. He, he's passed away since. But he said, Shane, if you ever write a book, and you're not willing then to come out with your very next book that says everything I said in that previous book is totally wrong. He said, never write. Mm. He said, because then what it tells me is you don't have That's the character good. to write. Um, and that for me is something in our church. I wish our churches would take this more seriously. Uh, we should be in disagreement on issues, maybe even passionately, but never to the point where we're, we're killing people and spilling other people's blood instead of united in the blood of Christ. So true. Man, I really appreciate that. Well, I I would love to end our conversation uh, the same place that Revelation ends, particularly considering your new book that's about to be released. Tell us what's going on, Revelation 21 and 22. Yeah. Well, it, uh, that yeah, the title of the book is Between Two Trees because of that. I studied Revelation, and finally it struck me. I was like, huh, Revelation 21 and 22, we're, we're back where we started. We're in a garden. There's the tree of life, and we're in the presence of God. Um, and really, the whole book wrestles with this tension. Here's the problem, though. We live life between two trees. We don't live it under the shade of Eden's tree. We don't live it under the trees of healing in New Jerusalem. We live life between these two trees, and between these two trees, life is hard. And it's filled with all kinds of questions and doubts and struggles and violence. And um, um, and so really what's fascinating is the book I sat down to write isn't the book that actually came out. <laughs> I sat down to write a book called Between Two Trees, but I sat down. I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book on how to read the book of Revelation. And then all of a sudden, halfway through it, I realized, oh, this is a book on how Revelation and the Word of God reads us. Um, so it, it ended up becoming uh, very, very much more about what was happening in my journal and the way that the text of Revelation was unearthing me. And so um, it is theological, but it is very autobiographical. I talk about um, the first time I heard the N-word and how racism was woven into my heart, but now having adopted a black son, how it's, how it's challenged me and in my own ways realized the different prejudices that were in my family and my heart. Wow. I talk about whenever I was molested when I was six um, and the different ways I've struggled with trying to forgive the babysitter. And all of this is in the context of we're in this world between two trees. So what does the tree of life in the middle of our story teach us? Because the true tree of life that comes through the Garden of Gethsemane is the cross of Calvary. Um, and so the whole book is wrestling with how do we allow ourselves to be unearthed uh, so that ultimately we can navigate this world between two trees uh, through the cross of Calvary. It's uh, it's interesting. It wasn't what I thought I was writing. <laughs> 
It's amazing how that can happen sometimes when you write. <laughs> and that uh, that's getting released soon, right? Yeah, it, it, it comes out uh, Kindle printed version February twelfth, and then the audio book, uh, which I I read. Man, what was it like sixteen hours of reading or something like that? But I read the audio book, and that'll be out around the same time. Yeah. So for those listening or watching, uh, most likely that's already happened in the past for you. Shout out from the past. So you guys have ample opportunity to go out and seek that right away. Mm-hmm. Well, then I'd love to just finish up our time by asking this kind of two-part question. So for people who are listening and really just want to dive in more to understanding the book of Revelation and maybe don't have a seminary degree, what would be some good resources that you would recommend? And then also, where can they find more of your stuff? Because I'm sure that that would be a great place to point them toward for the first question as well. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, I, I don't mean to be remotely pandering uh, in answering this, mm-hmm. uh, but m- my heart is to serve the church. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, and I had to get special permission from this from Ozark, but every single one of my lectures that I have in my college classes here, I put online for free um, and literally no strings attached. Like you can download all of my audio, all the videos, and I'll never know you did it. And, and people even ask me, like, can I use this inside of a classroom setting? I'm like, it's fine. Uh, so if you go to my website, shanejwood.com, every class I teach at Ozark, I teach Revelation. I teach a class on Roman history, um, introduction of the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, the Book of Acts. All the audio and video is online for free. And if you're wrestling with Revelation, I have uh, about uh, probably like about 80 hours or so of stuff on Revelation there. That's a good place to begin. Uh, but if you're looking for for other books, um, I actually have a couple of books I always tell people, and I tell them to read them in this order. Uh, and none of them are mine, so uh, so people will ultimately know that my heart is for them. Hopefully, uh, the first book is by a guy named Robert Lowry, and it's called Revelations Rhapsody. Oh man, he used to come to our church, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. You don't remember that? I, th- I remember a guy coming to the church talking about Revelation, but I was too young yeah, to be interested. Yeah, he came like three different times. And he used to guest preach like interim, but when we our church was between uh, pastors. I've huh. actually never heard anybody else outside of my church reference his work. So that's really cool. Huh. That was my mentor that passed away several years ago. I, I went and studied under him up at Lincoln Christian University. So that's that's an incredible yes. connection. Yes. a lot. Yeah. No, that book, that book is phenomenal. It, it's not a commentary. It gives you the tools. It says, hey, this is, this, is, this is the setting, and this is the genre, and this is the... So it gives some of those basics. The next book I usually tell people to dive into is I say, okay, now once you're wanting to get a pretty good, broad, responsible view of the text, uh, go to a book by... It's a small, little 96, 100-page book uh, by a guy named Bruce Metzger called Breaking the Code. How in the world he covers... All of Revelation in 96 pages in a very responsible way, I will never guess. Uh, But that book is fantastic. Then at that point, if you've listened to the lectures, if you've read those two books, then you're ready for a little bit more, some more meaty stuff. And this one's a a classic, but I I still recommend it. It's it's William Hendrickson's book um, called More Than Conquerors. It's it's a book from the 1960s, 70s. It's phenomenal, though, um, of giving an overview of Revelation. But I would read them in that order. <laughs> and if you're wanting to know more about, yeah, like where Between Two Trees comes in, if you want to know how the book uh, applies to you, that's where that one can come in. But if you're wanting to know the text, those are the three in that order I would read. And uh, for those of you listening, watching, uh, I've watched a couple of those video lectures you have on your website, and they're really good, and they're really high quality, good content. So I really encourage anyone curious to learn more to seek out those and watch them. Cool. Yep, and we'll put a link in the show notes and the description um, for the book on Amazon so you can check out Between Two Trees as well. Yeah. Was there any influence on uh, Between Two Ferns? Any... <laughs> oh, man, I wanted to ask that so bad. Man, some of my friends have sent me memes already with it, you know, like my, my face over Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> you, could do like, you could do like your own version promoting the book just like, oh, like two I would, trees i would watch that 
Hello. So hard. Brought to you by the Left Behind series. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. By Nicolas Cage's new movie. Yeah. Get like Kirk Cameron to show up, be interviewed. Get Kirk Cameron oh. to be a guest. Oh, yep. that'd be great. Well, anyway, uh, thank you so much for stopping by and talking about Revelation with us. It's been really good, and I've really loved the discussion. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a delight for me, too. So hopefully our paths will cross not just over uh, Skype, but in other ways. Yeah, you can uh, see these bald mugs in person, maybe. Now we're talking. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you again so much. Absolutely. Have a good night, guys. You too. Yeah, you too. Well, that was our interview and our better conversation with Dr. Shane Wood, and uh, I really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I hope we didn't oversell it in the intro, uh, but man, it was that was great. It was. I, I thought that was one of our better conversations we've had on the podcast. Get it? Yeah, I agree. It was, a, it was better conversations. Yeah, I, I got that, Chris. Oh my I just gosh. didn't want to point out that play on words there. But you just did it. So. I was slow to that party, so I'm, I'm glad you explained it. <laughs> well, if you really did like this better conversation, we encourage you to like and subscribe and share it. Don't be shy in sharing this, okay? It's not like you're sharing a highly political Facebook meme or something. Please interact with our Facebook page or our Instagram page and... Don't be afraid to suggest some topics or questions or better conversations you'd like to hear or maybe even say, hey, this person would be great to have on the show because I'd, we're willing to take the help. And by way of uh, giving a proof to what we're saying, if you go to our Patreon page and you sign up to support for certain tiers, you can actually help pick the topics for season three and... You can also be credited as a producer and get your name read in the show, depending on the tier. Who of hasn't support. had that as a dream in their life? Exactly. <laughs> to be a I producer mean, on the Better Questions podcast. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm excited about it. The producer so far just be like, brought to you by Mary Jo Drake. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Jo Drake. <laughs> William Drake, which is our parents. My parents don't listen. <laughs> It's okay. Our parents Are you listen happy for or your sad parents. about that. <laughs> uh, uh, that was another good one, guys, and I look forward to our next one. That was some good juice. <laughs>